Welcome to a live episode of the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. It's presented by Tri-State Cadillac Dealers. Visit Cadillac showrooms today. I'm Joel Sherman. I'm with my co-host John Heyman here at the Ainsworth Midtown, East 45th Street. Thank you to the Ainsworth for making this possible. Thank you for everyone who came out tonight. It's uh, really appreciated by, uh, by the Post and me and John. He really is a special guest. We're less than 48 hours away from the beginning of this season. And to preview the season, talk about the major issues of the game, we have the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. And Rob, thank you so much for joining us in a live event. It's really appreciated. Happy to be here, Joel. And, you know, it's nice to be in a bar. It really is. It's a great thing. So so, so it should be noted, we're hoping for a great podcast because already the commissioner is two beers into the game here. So, uh Rob, you know, like, I think probably John and I, uh, J- Rob has done the job since 2015, but he's worked for decades in the commissioner's office. Uh, and uh, probably most of the time when we're talking to you, we're chasing you about something that's not great for Major League Baseball. This feels like a great moment for your sport. Met fans, hold your ears. I know you don't believe this, but there was a great WBC. Um, you just, uh, you know, who could have scripted it better to end Trout Otani? And your players, your management, everyone seems to be, and the fans most importantly, are embracing your new rules designed to kind of speed up play, get more action. I, would, I just wonder, broad picture, do you, because of the history of this, do you just wait for the other shoe to drop or are you trying to revel in this moment where things do seem very positive for your sport? You know what, I, I have really enjoyed, um, you know, kind of goes back to last September. Um, we started to see, terms of attendance in ballparks, numbers that we hadn't seen, forget pandemic, since 2014. Um, I felt like the weekend, um, the three game series were tremendously popular. Um, You know, we worried, those those games were supposed to be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday to avoid football. Our broadcast partners, after we did the weekend, said this is the greatest thing in the world. Never mind what else is going on. This is a great weekend for baseball. So we felt like we had real momentum going into the off season. Um, I think you know Tony Regan's in particular did a phenomenal job um, putting the U.S. team together for the WBC. You know Mike Trout stepping out, not only agreeing to play but being the captain and then actively going out to recruit other players. Let's face it, if you're gonna recruit baseball players, you got Mike Trout doing it, you're in pretty good shape. Um, I thought the event was phenomenal. The atmosphere in Miami for the semis and the finals, unbelievable. Um, You know, I went to Arizona, I saw some games out there, I thought that the atmosphere there was equally good. I mean, just a lot of interest. And on the playing rules, I've been, you know, again, baseball, it's always about the players. The players have been phenomenal on the rules. They've been, you know, almost without exception, positive about the rule changes in their public statements. Um, I think that helps, gets the fans positive. And I think the outcome, you know, the game is better. The game truly is better. So we feel great about where we are. and We're looking forward to a really great season. 
Yeah, I think the new rules are great. I, I want to say, as a newspaper writer, it's, the stories are going to be better. The deadlines, it's going to help us tremendously. So I, we were Let in favor. Let the selfishness begin. Yeah, well, that's, that's the way I think. You know that, Joel. Uh, but it does speed up the game. It trims the fat from the game. I do have one specific question about the uh, pitch clock, though. We saw one game in spring training end on a t- pitch clock violation, and that was the end of the game. How can we be sure this is not going to happen in the playoffs or, God forbid, the World Series? Yeah, we're, we're not sure is the answer. Um, but I will say this. I think the, the, the people in the commissioner's office who were responsible for the implementation, you know, Morgan Sword, Raul Abanez, CC, Mike Hill, um, they made a series of really good decisions that, quite frankly, you know, I was not sure that I was on board with one of them was, you know, go full bore right at the beginning. No transition. Don't lengthen it. Just put the rules out there and make them play under it. And and I think the, the reason that decision was so good is it happened. It happened in week one. And I think that it impressed upon players that it could happen. And I think the likelihood of it happening in a high-pressure situation goes way down because they've seen it, number one. Number two, you know, look, um, this is going to be something that many people won't agree with. Our umpires are really good. They, they, They manage the game that is, you know, a whole lot of very competitive people, players, managers, coaches, day-to-day, they manage it in a way um, to de-escalate situations. And I think that, you know, they have a certain amount of discretion in terms of the way things are done, and I really have great faith in their judgment, particularly in high-pressure situations. You know, I wonder if I could just retreat to the WBC. Uh, again, it was a very successful tournament, but you spoke afterwards that you hoped, especially for the U.S., that some of the better pitchers, starting pitchers, uh, appear in the next one in 26, and you did announce that there's going to be another tournament in 26. You, you mentioned Mike Trout. You had your Mike Trout moment that kind of like twist arms to get the best players to come. How do you twist I hate to say arms, right? Because that's the, the fear here is that somebody hurts their arm. This is really about the teams, right? They don't want to let these pitchers pitch in this tournament. Right. You know, the, the build up um, and manage it, management of pitching throughout the season has gotten to be very scientific and rigorous, and they have patterns that they want. Um, I, I think. Um, we're going to rely on two things, and I did some of this today at an executive council call today. Try to explain to people how, owners in particular, how important the WBC is to the international growth of the game. We had games where 65 million people worldwide watched WBC games. That's never happened. World Series, it never happened. Okay, and that's a really important number for us in terms of the upside in our business um, that ultimately benefits not only owners but the, 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 the players. So convincing them of the business proposition behind the WBC is really important. 
um, number one. Number two, I think it's incumbent upon us to think about the protections that um, can be afforded to clubs in order to encourage them to make the decision that we want them to make. You know, um, right now, they're protected financially. We buy the insurance. There's no monetary loss to the clubs. But, you know, it's, it's more than that, right? It's the player eh, when you lose the player. And we need to think hard about what we can do um, to protect clubs and put them in a position to make the decision that we want to make. It's all about creating a framework that they can make the right decision. Yeah, one thing I found interesting about that is there were MLB teams that let star pitchers go to this event. They just didn't happen to be on the U.S. team. Alcantara, Urias, Darvish, uh, Shohei Otani. But our best pitchers, for whatever reason, Cole, Verlander, Scherzer, some of them are older, Freed, Cease, they didn't happen to come. But, you know, I want to ask you about the attendance. Things are going great in baseball. We're up to an $11 billion industry. Seems like everything is fantastic, but the attendance has gone down a little bit. Obviously, COVID uh, was a big part of that. Do you feel like the new rules are going to bring the attendance back to where it was? Okay, I'm, I'm going to talk about the first thing you said, okay. and then I'll Fair. answer your question about attendance. I do think um, one of the things that has helped um, – some other countries, not the U.S. team necessarily, is that the national pride issue really drives players to, you know, say to their clubs, I need to do this. That, you know, I really need to do this. You know, I mean, it's it's part of nationalism and and patriotism. And I think that um, that's another powerful force. Um, I doubt that, you know, Mike Trout said he wanted to play the next time. I hope that turns out to be true. Um, he usually is very good to his word, and I'm sure it will be. Um, but I bet he's going to want to make sure he ha- has the very best arms with him, and I think the U.S. team is going to have more of that peer pressure to participate in the event, um, given its significance internationally. So um, we got a lot of things going for us there. We got work to do, uh, but I do think we can make the next one even better than the one we just had. Um, Attendance, um, you know, the best I can tell you, John, is I I think what we have done in terms of the rule changes was exclusively driven by fan research about what they wanted to see. Um, So I am optimistic that that's going to play out on the attendance side. Interestingly, the clubs are equally optimistic that we're going to be up attendance-wise, and um, I think that would be an important turning point for our game. You know, uh, you haven't even played game one with all these new rules implemented, so let's make some news today. Are we going to have robot umps next year or the challenge system in place? Well, let me say one thing. I hate the robot ump thing because it really does kind of mischaracterize what's going on. I mean, I think people think that we're getting rid of home plate umpires are going to go to a game and somehow there's no... Well, the challenge system is being used in a few places and people do seem to like that challenge system, right? Absolutely. I'll come back to the challenge system. But you got to remember the the basic system, the original system... um, 
even when the system is calling every pitch, there is an umpire behind home plate with an earpiece who gets the call and it looks to the fan. And remember, at the end of the day, it's always about what it looks to the fan, just like it looks today. Okay, that's really important. Um, there are issues with respect to the utilization of the system on every pitch, and they are all related to the fact that the system actually calls exactly what is in the rule book, right? Um, umpires call a more oval, if you look at what actually happens, they call a more oval strike zone. They leave those corners out. We need to work that through. Um, I think the, the challenge system, people really like it. Um, I went down, I, I love this story actually, Raul and I went down um, to see a, a, a minor league game in Tampa. And, you know, I'm thinking, I want to see this challenge, right? I'm, I, you know, I, but you don't know how many you're going to get because it depends on who challenges. So we're sitting there, and I'm, I'm paying attention. You know, nobody else there. Nobody's talking to me. I'm paying attention to the game. And Raul says to me, well, what do you think? I said, what do you mean, what do you think? He said, well, that was just the first challenge. I, I completely missed it. It took like three seconds, literally. The, there was a signal from the pitcher. I, I didn't, I mean, I knew about the signal. I didn't happen to see it. The umpire got the correct call in his earpiece. He corrected the call, and it was over with. I missed the whole damn thing. Now, fortunately, there were three more in the game. I did get to see it. It's very fast, um, number one. Number two, it does get back to what we were talking about when we first instituted replay. And it was, the idea was fix the big miss. It was not like we were gonna get everything perfect because perfect is hard in life, right? The idea was fix the big miss. And I think the challenge system does that. I also think it is a transitional kind of idea. Um, you know, look, I, I don't wanna, um, eliminate the role of the framing catcher. That's not my goal. Um, and, y you know, that could be an outcome. Um, but I think there's issues we need to work through where a transitional program that involved challenges that didn't impact um, the pace of the game and, you know, fix the big miss. Sounds like a pretty good idea. Just because even people here and, and people who listen to this might not know what the challenge system is unless you were in minor league oh, games last year. So you do, you, do, you, do you want to? Uh, I'll do it. Yeah, go. You go. You're the commissioner of baseball. Well, the challenge system, really simple. The catcher, the pitcher, and the batter all have the right to challenge. If they're right, they, there's three, I think, a game. They keep their challenge if they're correct. They lose their challenge if they're incorrect. There's some interesting strategy associated with it. Um, the managers both explained to us pregame in Tampa that some organizations who'd played under the rule only let the catcher challenge because they thought both the pitcher and the hitter were inclined to be too emotional about, you know, whether the call was right or wrong and waste challenges. Um, but it, it, it's very fast. Um, it, it doesn't impact the, the pace of the game. And the big pitch that's missed can be impactful in the game, obviously. Yeah, I have a New York-centric question that was inspired by some clubhouse talk 
in a couple of clubhouses I was in recently, um, it seems that among the owners, some of them are not that thrilled that Steve Cohen has really run his payroll well beyond where anyone expected. I think it's $364 million by our count right now. Would have been $390 million had Carlos Correa deal gone through. And, you know, obviously now we have an economic reform system. I'm not sure if that was inspired by Cohn or Cohn triggered that at all. But uh, I want you to clear that up a little bit. You know, the players all love the idea that Cohn and obviously San Diego owner Seidler and Dallas, obviously they're spending. And they wonder why there isn't more emphasis on what is Cincinnati doing or Pittsburgh or particularly Oakland, which I saw Forbes said made $62 million last year. That may be quite an estimate. I don't know if that's true or not. But, you know, some people could look at that and say, why aren't we concerned about the teams that aren't giving everything? Why are we concerned about the guy who's trying his hardest? There's a lot in there. <laughs> Good thing you weren't a lawyer. <laughs> it's better enough little... he's a podcast host. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, um, had to, you had to get above a 380 right, so, on the else <laughs> to be a lawyer. Let, let, me, let me start with the Committee on Economic Reform, because this is really important to me. The Committee on Economic Reform was formed, began meeting, in fact, had several full-day meetings before Steve Cohen spent one dime in the offseason, okay? Had nothing to do with Steve Cohen. I want to be really clear about that, number one. Number two, what Steve spent in the offseason was completely consistent with all of our rules. He perfectly had every right to spend those dollars. Um, there are actually real benefits for the game associated with that spending. I mean, it does energize the Met fan base. Um, and, you know, obviously important to have energized fans in a very big market like New York. Um, so that's a good thing. The downside is spending at that level, particularly at a level that kind of steps away from everybody else, emphasizes a problem that baseball since I started in 1987 has grappled with and that is that the disparity in the revenues that are generated in our markets uh, produces a challenge in terms of competitive balance okay um, number one number two I, look it, you know I like Mike Ozanian I think he does a really good job of making estimates of finances that are not available. I will tell you that number is wildly incorrect. I, I, I you know, it's just the Forbes numbers. Yeah, the Forbes. That particular part of the Forbes. He's just wrong on that the number. Oakland $60 the Oakland sixty million dollar yeah. profit is just simply wrong. Um, I understand um, how you can miss on a club like Oakland. Um, you know, there's certain unique things about it, but the number's simply not correct. That club lost money last year. Um, you know, they had, and a big piece of the problem was they project, you know, Forbes's numbers suggested that their revenue went up between 21 and 22, which is not an unreasonable assumption given that 21 was a COVID impacted year. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen to be true. Even though you were coming off a bad 21, they 
did worse in terms of gross revenue in 2022. Hard to figure that out. I mean, I, I you know, we don't give them our numbers. They're not public. So, you know, I understand why they make that mistake. Last of the 3,000 things you had in that speech that you just gave, um, I, I would say this. Um, it is a mistake to assume that the clubs or Major League Baseball are not more concerned about the what happens in Cincinnati and Pittsburgh than we are about Steve Cohen. Steve Cohen did what they did. We're more concerned about making sure we have a system where Cincinnati, Oakland, Pittsburgh can, can compete reasonably. Are, are you, I know you, you guys got the rule in there. There was a, a Steve Cohn tax, 90%. It's going to go to 110%. At least that's what we call the Steve yeah. Cohn. You called are you, that. I didn't call are it. you yeah. surprised <laughs> that he's so willing to lose money? I believe, and I have heard, that he's losing more than $200 million in a year. It, I mean, even though he's worth a lot of money, is that surprising to you at all? Did you, did you well, think I, I, that could happen? I, I think losing a lot of money what you and I think of as a lot of money is all relative to how much money you have already. <laughs> and I do think that, you know, honestly, to his credit, and I mean this, Steve wants to win, you know, and that, that's a good thing. I mean, that, that's a really good thing. I mean, all our owners want to win, but, you know, he, he, he wants to win. So that, that's a good thing. And, um, you know, surprised, not surprised, I, you know, I don't know. I, that's a tough one for me. I think it is all relative. I think Steve Cohn would spend $200 million on positive PR, and he's hardly getting more positive PR out of anything than owning the Mets. If I could just follow up on this, the sense I get is that there are already war drums. I know you just got through a CBA. This is your first year afterwards, but that we're kind of gearing up again for small markets versus big markets and maybe everyone versus San Diego and the Mets. Are you dealing behind the scenes with a lot of this? And you, you know what this is about. You know, the Players Association has already raised the idea of no salary cap ever, ever. And that feels like it's going to be part of what your smaller markets are going to want. Yeah, you know, look, uh, let me say this. Um, I think our clubs are right now focused on thinking about where the game is um, in terms of its economics. Um, we have a lot of challenges out there, um, a lot of good things going on, but you know, the regionals are a problem for us. Um, we do have the ongoing issue of um, you know, competitive balance and revenue disparity. I don't think anybody on the club side um, has made up their mind um, that, you know, a salary cap is necessarily um, the answer. Um, we have, over a long period of time, avoided making a salary cap proposal, but there is one truism that it's hard to ignore, right? There are arguably I'm going to be generous here. Five major professional sports in North America. Four of them have one system. One of them has a different system. You know, I'm sort of a believer in the idea that, um, you know, the majority eventually gets it right. You know, when you're the outlier, you have to ask yourself the question of, does somebody else have the system right, number one. More important than any of that. Where it ultimately goes, I don't know what the proposal is going to be. It's years from now. More importantly, I think we are making 
um, maybe the most aggressive effort um, since I've been involved about communicating directly with players. Um, it, that involves multiple layers, me communicating and meeting directly with players, owners talking directly to players, to emphasize the fact that we have a common interest with players. That common interest is really fundamental. You put the best game possible, and for me that's always meant the most competitive game possible on the field. Um, the business does the best when that game, that product on the field is the best. When that game's the best, the business does the best. And you know what? When the business does the best, everybody does better. I'm going to change the subject here on throw you a curveball. You've, you've probably heard this question before, but not for a while. Uh, Pete Rose, uh, gambling is now pers pers pervasive, that's the word. Um, does that change the equation? I know that he's kind of pleaded his case several times and hasn't got anywhere. Is that still a case that's possible? And I know you're a big baseball fan. I, how have we done with our Hall of Fame voting? And is there somebody you'd like to see in there that we haven't put in? Okay, so let me, let me start with Pete. Um, you know, I don't think that um, the fact that the law changed in the United States and that fans are now allowed to engage in legalized sports betting alters um, the rules, the you know values associated whether with whether players should be betting on the game. And I 100% believe if you bet on baseball, you should be banned from baseball for life. I mean, that's what it says, and I, I take it quite literally. Um, I have written, I have written and continue to believe that the fact that you should not be able to work or be involved in the game in a way that you could affect an outcome should not be the same test as to whether you should be in the Hall of Fame. It's a museum, after all. It is not a competitive undertaking. And I think it, the, the, the real question is not whether I should take him off the permanently ineligible list, because I think that's where he belongs. The real question is, should the Hall of Fame eligibility rule be the same test as to whether you're permanently ineligible from participating in the game as a on-field personnel. I wrote that the first time he appealed, and I continue to believe that. Um, I will advocate for that position as a member of the Hall of Fame board, but, you know, that's a Hall of Fame board issue. Um, I, you know, in terms of people who should or shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame, I have to tell you, um, I'm a damn good fan. I think, you know, I spent a lot of time watching the game. I love the game. I've watched the game for a really long time. I do not envy those of you who have ballots. I think it's a really hard job. Um, and over time, uh, you know, because it's not appropriate for me to talk about specific individuals, one of the things that I think is the best about the Hall of Fame process is when you look at the job the writers have done over time, I think they've done a phenomenal job dealing with, you know, horribly variant circumstances across time. 
um, you know, all sorts of behavior that may or not, may not be relevant to, you know, what happens on the field. And, you know, I just have a lot of faith in, in the writers as kind of, you know, stewards and protectors of that Hall of Fame process that they're, they're the people that should be voting. Uh, Rob, you made uh, reference to it before, your RSN situation. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Diamond, I believe, filed for bankruptcy. I think they do 14 of your teams in, in the sport. It feels like you're trying to get to something larger where you guys maybe have, like, streaming, the blackout rules go away, etc. I always wonder, will Yes go for that, SNY, you know, the bigger markets? Can you generally yeah. give us an idea where you think things are and what you think the future of that is? Yeah, look, I, I want to be really clear about this. It's important to think about, you got to separate two things. Um, what would you like to happen, number one, and what do you need to be prepared to do, number two? So, number one, my ideal outcome, and I want to be really clear about this, is that Diamond figures out a way to pay the clubs the rights fees that they agreed to pay and continues to broadcast games so that our fans can watch the games. No disruption is my ideal outcome. It's not like I have some agenda where, you know, I woke up, you know, on a January one said, you know, I want to get in the local media business. <laughs> that, that was not how it happened. Um, you know, I, 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 that is what I would like to have happen. Um, because Diamond has, for literally years, been telling us that the eight and a half billion dollars of debt that they put on an asset that they bought for ten was untenable. They, they made that decision. We didn't. Um, because of that, we have made contingency plans where the number one objective was one thing. Our fans would always have the ability to watch the games. Might not be perfect day one, but they would always have the ability to watch our games because for us it's about the fans. Um, once, once you're in that business and you're, f and, and, and I'm really, I, I do want to say this, we would be forced into that business. It's a question of, you know, we're bankrupt, we're not doing it anymore, somebody's got to do it, and there's nobody else to do it. If we are forced into that business, I do believe um, that it creates an opportunity for baseball to create um, a distribution system for our games that is better than what we have today for the fan, particularly on the issue of blackouts, and there are multiple kinds of blackouts, but a, 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 a distribution system that gives the Rob Manfreds of the world who ain't ever given up his cable remote. <laughs> I can watch my games, just like I always watch them, but I also can get to that approximately 40% of homes across the country that don't have cable anymore, and they have an option to watch Major League Baseball on a platform where they are comfortable. So there is, you know, we have a plan if we're forced into the business as to what we're going to do. We do think we can make it better for our fans, but I want to close where I started. Number one, number one is I'd like them to pay what they agreed to pay to the clubs and broadcast the games. Makes sense. 
had one more, and thank you very much for joining us. We really do appreciate this, Rob. Um, the wild winter of spending. Do you look at it as like this validates that we're going in the right direction? Baseball's doing great, or did you look at it like how? What are these guys doing there? Are they crazy? I, I will interject one opinion of my own. I don't get the opt-out. Why? What's the necessity of giving that opt-out and then adding another $200 million at the end of it? All right. So, you know, I made myself a promise that um, when I started that, you know, clubs were going to decide what they were going to do with players. And, you know, it, it was not part of my mandate job description whatever you to sit in judgment about those decisions you know it's my job to make a framework within which they operate that we negotiate with the players association but if you're it's like i said about steve if you're acting within the framework that's your business so uh number one number two i do think that the winter we had was a positive for baseball in terms of the buzz interest that it generates for our fans. And again, it's about the fans. Um, I think, you know, when we have the winter meetings, whatever week that is in December, and, you know, the headlines get dominated by what clubs are doing to make themselves better and more uh, the next year, it makes our fans excited. That's a good thing. Um, do I worry about the prudence of some things yeah i do I, I do i think you know very long-term deals have always concerned me because i think for two reasons number one it creates inflexibility um in payroll you know you get committed long term turns out old rob manfred doesn't really turn out to be as good as you thought he was going to be and then you got old rob manfred he's stuck there and you know that's not a good outcome for anybody um so i do i i, I worry about that piece of i always worry i also worry about the fact look you know we have franchises that have asset values that are wildly different you know, I mean, it, that, that's a product of our revenue disparity and the disparity in our market sizes. The problem with really long-term deals, that's where you get to a very fine point on the ability of smaller markets to compete. You know, if, if I'm a large market and I got very high revenue and I make a mistake, I might be okay. But when my small market guy goes out and tries to compete and he makes that deal, that long-term deal, and he turns out to be wrong, it's much tougher on that franchise, and the effects of it last longer, and longer periods of non-competitiveness are bad for the game in terms of losing fans and not getting them back. Really important. Last, you know, I, 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 you know my father had this thing, you know, he, the worst thing he ever said about somebody, he's one way. And that's my thought on opt-outs. It's one way, right? I mean, it's just a one-way deal. I don't know why you do that. I don't either. <laughs> well, old Rob Manfred's been a terrific uh, podcast guest, just so you know. Uh, and I'm going to wrap up with just following up on two things. Okay. Um, you mentioned before visiting with the players. I know we talked a little about this, that oftentimes you and CeCe Sabathia, Raul Obanias, you'll go out. It was part of this new effort to kind of like hear the players, et cetera. I wonder, can you tell us like the most interesting thing you've heard, if you'd like to share who it was from, like is there a good story about Rob Manfred meeting a player, maybe maybe even one who you thought was intractable on his position? Look, I, you know, I have been um, 
scrupulous, maybe is a good word, about not talking about the content in these meetings. I, I will tell you one thing, because he's talked about it. Um, you know, if you look back um, during the Houston um, disciplinary period there, uh, nobody was tougher on me than Joe Kelly. I mean, he, he was outspoken, you know, maybe bordering on disrespectful, maybe, I don't know. Um, um, but, you know, it, it was really interesting. You know, I, I saw Joe a year ago in one of these meetings. We had a really interesting exchange um, about the game, thoughtful. Um, you know, he really thinks about, the, you know, not just him and where he is in the game, but about the game you know, long term, we had a really interesting exchange. He called me and he said, I'm writing a book and I want to interview you. Sort of like, I don't know, <laughs> but I did it. And it was, it was actually a lot of fun. I mean, I really, truly enjoyed it. I saw Joe again recently in a player meeting and it was really nice. He gave me a copy of the book and our relationship, I would say, was changed by that communication effort and it's a two-way effort he communicated i tried to communicate and i think we ended up in a lot better place as a result and that's what those meetings are about yeah last thing and again just uh, i recognize what a third rail issue it is but it feels like there was a loose thread there and i just want to go back which is you mentioned that four of the five sports have a salary cap mm -hmm. and when you say that do you think your sport needs it and do you want to advocate for it Look, I, you know, I'm a believer in the fact that um, our bargaining objectives should be set by ownership. I, you know, it is a process that we have always been rigorous about. I'm not in a position um, to prejudge um, what those objectives should be the next time around. We're a long time away from it. Um, you know, the last time out, they made a strategic decision, the group of them, that that was not one of the objectives we were going to pursue. Um, I think uh, what they decide ultimately is going to be a product of where they see the sport, um, you know, when we get closer to the expiration of the next agreement. I will say this, I, I, you know, I, I have never... Um, you know, either in baseball and, you know, I did a lot of bargaining in other industries. I have never said about any particular topic, we will never do X, um, particularly years away from a round of bargaining. And, you know, it's, they're right. I mean, if that's what they want to say, that's fine. Um, but I, I think it's important, um, particularly in an environment where our economics are moving. Um, some parts of it is getting really, really positive. Other places, like the RSNs, we've talked about them being challenged. Um, we've talked about the issue of disparity and competitive balance, how important it is to the business overall. And you know, I hope that when we go to the table the next time, it's not about before we get in the room, no, we won't do this. Um, and, and maybe we'll do that instead that it is here's where the business what's the best thing we can do for this business that ensures that the business grows that the most money is available to players and that you know we have 30 places where players want to be able to go so they can compete Rob can we have a the audience has a couple of questions before? yeah well, I'll yep. do whatever you want uh, 
This young man over here, do you have a question? Yes, uh, this is a great show. Yeah. Uh, big fan of the podcast, big fan of all the rules changes. This has been awesome. Rob, speaking of expanding uh, uh, resources, revenue, et cetera, after the World Baseball Classic, many of us have seen that the quality of the player in Japan, South Korea particularly, they're much better than they were in the first World Baseball Classic. They're obviously not all Shinotani, but there are a lot of players there. Advanced economies, etc. How much would you like to see? How realistic is it? When could it possibly happen that we expand to Asia and so You know, here's what I think about Asia, and it, it, it really isn't um, expansion thought. Um, it, you know, the travel issue. You know, in today's world, you know, given what, you know, I know people say it's going to be different in 10 years. I'm going to be hopefully only teeing it up 10 years from now. You know, I mean, um, so, uh, you know, I don't see that as a realistic alternative. Um, I do think that the model that we have developed both with the KBO and the MPB, meaning the Korean Professional League and the Japanese Professional League, is really almost perfect for the internationalization of the game. And what do I mean by perfect? The agreements that we have with the leagues work so that they have a really robust domestic product. I mean, you go see, I mean, domestic games in Japan, they real games. I mean, these are great games with great players. Same thing in Korea. Um, but yet we have enough flexibility in the system that the Shohei Otanis can find their way to the U.S. Um, I, I, I think that that cross-fertilization of a number of players um, that doesn't ruin the domestic league but gives us you know a view of how great the Japanese players is, drives interest in Japan in our domestic play. Um, I think that's a great model in terms of the internationalization of the game. Anyone else? Uh, at, at the end of it, I'm just, I'm not sure that the microphones here are picking it up, so I'll just synthesize the question after they asked it so that everybody could hear it. Go ahead. Yep. As the commissioner, you have to balance risk between what the fans want, what the players want, what ownership wants, and it's hard to be, I guess, fair to everybody. But you're always thinking about, as you mentioned before, the fans and what, what they want to see. My question is, is with, with, the rules, with the rules competition and the changes you're doing with you're adding a clock, you know, most middle-aged guys like me and older fans, we're not, we, we like the fact baseball doesn't have a clock. It's one of the beauties of the sport. Now, now, you, now you're putting a little bit of clockwork into it. That's fine. I'm, I think changes is potentially attractive to will gain viewership these things. My question has to do with, was there any thought given to perhaps when, when, there's, when there's two strikes on a batter, if there's three more foul balls, four more foul balls, that now that batter should be out because that's, that's <laughs> a lot. That, that, that would reduce the, 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 the 
drag on the arms. I can't believe I agreed to try to synthesize that question. <laughs> I got it. No, uh, to synthesize the question is like uh, a lot, a lot, a lot. If a couple of foul balls, you should be struck out. Yeah. yeah. yeah you want my <laughs> questions now, right? <laughs> we, we, we got it. We got it. We got it. Yeah. Look, I, I, you know, I, I just think, um, first of all, change in baseball is a really difficult thing. Um, let me say a word about the clock. Remember, baseball is still the only game without a clock, if you really think about it, right? The game doesn't end based on time running out. It's no different than it's always been. There happens to be a timer that's out there uh, regulating one part of the game, but it's still the game with no clock, number one. Um, but the, the, the larger point is this. I think there's certain things about the game and I hope I'm a good enough fan to understand what those certain things are. And if I'm not, I know I have, you know, former players and people who've been involved in the sport their whole life around me to keep me honest. OK, um, I, I believe take the clock. A pitch timer is the side of the line where you can convince people it's a good change to manage other things that have happened in the game. Um, saying that at 2.20, the game's over is the wrong side of the line, okay? With respect to your suggestion, I hate to say this, but I do think the idea um, that a batter would be out on anything other than a real strike um, is the wrong side of the line. I can't give you a better answer than that. I, I really do believe it's like, you know, there's going to be nine innings. I think it's in that category. We could get in a couple more if we keep it between zero seconds and Heyman in the level of question <laughs> here. Go ahead. He didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's say a scenario. Seventh inning, the team's up by three or two runs. Do you think we could potentially in the future of this year um, increase the pitch or remove the clock? Look, we, we're aware, let me say this, we are aware of the significance of high leverage situations, late inning high leverage situations. Um, right now, I kind of like what I'm seeing. I'm going to play some regular season games. I've said this to players. Look, we made some adjustments just last week to deal with some issues that we heard from players. Our feet are not in stone. We want to see the regular season work a little bit and decide, you know, what, if anything, should be done. We really like the early returns. We do. I, I just would be dishonest if I didn't say that. If potentially you don't like it during the season, you might change it. I, I, my feet, I, I've said this and I'll say it again. I, I, you know, we are always in, I, I, we are always in the business of taking input and trying to figure out whether we can make things better. I think one of the things we hope the new competition committee with the players accomplishes is that we get more into the mode where other sports are, where there's an ongoing dialogue about how you have to play and every individual change is not taken like it's an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, okay? <laughs> do, do, uh, we have time for one last one if someone has it. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of rule changes made. I think one that Scott talked about much is like the schedule changes. Like my roommate's a Phillies fan, I'm a Mets fan. So this year there's like five less games we can watch together. And it's being replaced by interleague games, which to be honest, I don't care as much about. I just wonder what your thoughts. 
Yeah. So, so let me, so let me uh, uh, they're going from six series within the division down to four. So it's 19 games down to 13, mm-hmm. I believe, uh, within the divisions. 18, yeah. uh, and every team will play every other team at some point during the season. Uh, questions if that's a good move or not. Yeah. So let me tell you what the thinking is. Um, we're going to find out whether it's a good move or not. <laughs> you can't change this one during the season. Right. <laughs> um, you, you know, I think one of the things, and it relates to our media strategy and the commitment to the RSNs over time, um, but it also relates to our schedule, is the game became really um, local, right? Um, People watched their individual teams. You know, they saw their divisional opponents coming in very, very frequently. Um, and one of the things that we think is important to the growth of the game is that the, the game become more national. Um, you can't make the game more national unless, unless players in markets on a regular basis see some of the greatest players in the game. You may not love... Um, you know, interleague games, I heard that what you're saying, but you know what? If you're a Met fan and you got a chance to see Mike Trout, that's a pretty good thing. That, that's a pretty good thing. And so we're thinking that exposure across the league puts more variety in the schedule um, and, you know, gives fans, most importantly, the opportunity to see great players who are in markets that they haven't had a chance to see on a regular basis. Well, Rob, uh, John and I, the New York Post, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to to join us on the brink of the season. This was really appreciated and insightful. We want to thank the people here at the Ainsworth who made this possible. Don't forget, uh, this was presented by Tri-State Cadillac Dealers. Visit your Cadillac showroom today. Uh, Every week on the show uh, with Joel Sherman and John Heyman, it's a post-podcast. There's a lot of people that made this possible. Let me just, as usual, cite Jake Brown and Andrew Hartz always make it possible for us to get through a show. Uh, if you like this, please listen to us and, uh, you know, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Five-star ratings allow us to stay in business. And... Uh, Stick, oh, yes, yes, the Yes app. Uh, tomorrow by noon, uh, you'll be able to see all of our pretty faces, especially the commissioner, if you stick with us. And really, the season's about to begin. If the WBC was any preview of the season we have, we're in for a great season. I hope you join us every week on the show with Joel Sherman and John Hayden.